0: What a great time we've had already this morning just singing together, and Russ was right, the singing this morning is especially well done, I might add myself, and so it's great to be together with you and to do that. And so as we come to our time in the Word of God this morning, we are obviously preparing our hearts to come together around the Lord's table in just a little while, and we need to return this morning to... The second part of our current series in the book of Romans that I have entitled The Justice That No One Desires. The Justice That No One Desires. We have been studying Paul's letter to the Romans for several weeks now and we need to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. So if you're not already there in Romans chapter 2, please open your Bibles to that. As most of you know, the elders of this church spend a concentrated time together each month. We take the first Sunday of the month and we are normally here all day that day because after our morning worship time we spend time together as elders and during those times we are uh, doing many things. We're talking about things that we are reading, we're dealing with uh, issues uh, within the church itself, but we are collectively really evaluating the biblical priorities of the church We as a church and what we are to be. And then, according to those priorities that we understand from the Word of God and we think about in light of what God teaches, we can begin then to identify for us as a church both strengths and weaknesses and areas where we might need to shore up some things and other areas where there is a strength in the church. And we do this so that we as leaders and us as a corporate body, that we can begin to, to address potential areas of greatest need so that we can be a church that God actually desires us to be. One of the things that is constantly before us and we are constantly grateful for and yet on a regular basis desiring more and more of is the doctrinal truth concerning evangelism. Evangelism is both the personal responsibility of us as Christians, but it is also the corporate responsibility of the church. The Bible tells us that this is why we have been left here for a time on this earth. We are sojourners and strangers. Peter calls us aliens. We are aliens on this earth. And we are here so that we might share with others the glories of Christ. That is something we will not do in heaven. We will not evangelize. Evangelism is an earthly ministry. And we have that responsibility so that we might, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness and into the kingdom of His dear Son. That is evangelism. That is the essence of why we are here, to tell others about the greatness and excellencies of God. And so, by God's design, we are His divine means through which the world is confronted with the good news concerning Jesus Christ. We are that means; God is not necessarily going to uh, tell others about His son without the means of someone going. right How will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and this is when you when you look at the book of Romans, this is the very focus, this is the very drive behind Paul's letter to the Christians that are there in Rome. Remember, he is writing to saints, those who are saved, and yet he says these very, very uh, realities of the doctrines of the judgment of God because he wants us as Christians to understand the Gospel. This is the thesis. It is the Gospel. Making sure in his own conscience as a Christian before the living and true God that he is carrying out his Christian responsibility in sharing the uncompromised good news concerning the salvation of Jesus Christ with all men. And so we learn for us as Christians what the gospel is. And Paul, in his writing of Romans, is sharing throughout it the gospel And as I have said all along, the good news concerning God's plan of redemption for mankind, for those whom He has chosen to save, begins with the news that no human desires to hear. Nobody desires to hear where the gospel must begin. What is that? Or why is that? It is because it begins with news of personal guilt before God. Personal guilt. Nobody wants to be said of themselves that they are guilty. And yet, this is where the gospel begins. It begins with news concerning personal culpability before the very creator of the universe. Personal, individual culpability before a holy God. The one who has in fact fashioned you from nothing. It begins with the pronouncement of God's righteous judgment upon man. Why does it begin there? Because all men are guilty before God. And all men are guilty before God because all men are in fact Sinners. So this is where we find ourselves in the study of Paul's letter. And we have to remind ourselves that here in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is driving this point home to the hearts of the religious moralists of the day. In Paul's day, that was the Jews. They were the religious moralists of the day. And yet Paul is driving home this reality that all are guilty. The Jews continually were trying to argue that this guilt that Paul is talking about did not apply to them. It did not apply to the religious moralists of the day. And the Spirit of God is knocking away every supposed support that is being used as an excuse as to why God should not be judging someone. This was the Jews of Paul's day. In our day, it is the secularist. It is the moralist. It is the person who says, I'm okay because I'm a good person in the world. And through Paul's description of man... Man is smack in the middle, if you will, of a room of mirrors and the only thing looking back at him is himself. There is no escaping the truth. There is no escaping the reality of who he is before a holy God. No one truly wants to admit it. Especially those who believe they are good people. Nobody wants to admit their guilt. There are those who are the moralists of our day who do not want to admit their guilt. There are those who have been part of the religion all their lives who do not want to admit their guilt before God. There are those who have grown up in religious families and religious homes and their heritage is somehow linked to their their very being and so they think that because of their heritage there is no reason why God should judge them. So the question that is asked is this, why would God desire to hold them, good people, moral people, uh, religiously right uh, in the sense of their own activities people, why would God desire to hold them in contempt of him? No one truly desires to be judged by God. You ask anybody, anybody in the world, if they want to be judged by God, if they desire to be judged by God, not one person, I dare say, would say, absolutely, bring it on, I can stand before a holy God. No, all men intrinsically know that God has a right to judge evil, that He has a right to judge the evil of the world. All men know that. But why would He still judge those who are not participating in that kind of evil, who do not participate in the things that that Paul even lists here in Romans chapter 1. Why would God judge people who are not gossips, who are not slanderers, who are not arrogant and boastful? Why would God judge those kinds of people? Surely those are the good people. and Surely they will be okay with God in the day of judgment. Well, it is to these people and in answer to that question that Paul is beginning to address in chapter 2. He is addressing the religious moralists of the day. Those who believe that by means of their outward good life or the fact that because they have a good life, it's obvious that God isn't judging them or through their religious heritage, They believe that they can actually be justified and declared innocent in the divine courtroom of God. That is to whom Paul is addressing these words in chapter 2. In last Lord's Day we began to look at the lessons and the reasons really why God is indeed justified in his condemning even those who appear good outwardly why is God justified in his condemning of those who on the outward side of life especially in comparison to the rest of the globe are good people why is God justified in judging them And I said last time that there were four reasons why God is justified in his judgment that Paul gives us here. This is, of course, not an exhaustive list. We could surely find all kinds of reasons for God's justification. But it is is four convincing reasons, to say the least, concerning the religion or the religiously good or the secularist or the moralist of the day. Let me just begin once again by reading for us the first 11 verses of this chapter. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things? And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same, you will that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. The Apostle Paul, having dealt with the Gentile world in chapter 1, the irreligious. Paul now turns his attention upon his own brethren by heritage, his own Jewish people, moralistic Jews. And the conclusion that they must come to in their own heart and mind is that they are just as guilty before God. And judgment is coming and judgment is justified and Paul lists four reasons for us in just these few verses. I began them last, Lord's Day. The first one was just this. God is justified in His judgment even against the religious moralist because of flagrant hypocrisy. And we covered this last time in verses 1 through 3. And his entire uh, emphasis is on the idea of the self-deception within them concerning their their. Stance with sin. In other words, the religious moralists believe that because they do judge some sin, that because the religious moralist looks out and says, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and that's wrong, because they have a moralistic system in which they judge somebody else, they believe on that basis that God would take that into account as their testimony of some kind of inherent righteousness within themselves, and they will not be exposed to the judgment that is coming from God. moralist loves to point the finger out at sin and rightly so in fact sin needs to be judged but it never points it at itself it's always pointing outward never looking itself never including itself within the judgment in fact the attitude of the moralist particularly in Paul's day, wasn't that they would even escape the judgment of God. The attitude was there wasn't even a reason for God to judge them. And in fact, judgment was for everybody else. God didn't even have a reason to judge them. But God is a just God. His condemnation of man is always right. Notice verse 2, Paul says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. The literal rendering is this. We know that the judgment of God is always according to truth. It's always according to truth. And the religious or the secular moralist has forgotten that reality. They have forgotten that God's judgment is always according to truth. It is not according to some standard on which they have, because verse 3 clearly shows that. Do you suppose this, that when you pass judgment upon those that practice such things, and you know that if you practice those kinds of things, that the, the judgment of God is according to truth, it rightly falls there. It has to fall there. Do you suppose that when you judge that and you do that, that it will not rightly fall on you? What you are saying is God doesn't judge according to truth. He only judges according to that person and how I see that person rather than according to truth. And if I'm doing that, I'm under that same judgment. God's judgment must always be according to absolute truth or God ceases to be God. God cannot overlook one little sin where God is no longer God. He no longer judges according to truth. Truth is unbending. Truth is unchanging. And so the moralist, because of his flagrant hypocrisy, proves his own guilt before God. Proves that he is under the same judgment The moralist judges others proving that he knows the truth even though he never judges himself in line with that truth. And so the moralist, because of his flagrant hypocrisy, proves that he is guilty. He is guilty before a holy God. In fact, that is why Paul starts this entire chapter with, therefore... In other words, in light of chapter 1, you might want to remove yourself from that reality because you don't act in that same kind of capacity. But the reality is you too are without excuse. Because when you look at those lists of things that Paul listed and that not being an exhaustive list of how people act out their sin, when you look at that and say, I don't do that, 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 oh, I must be okay with God. Paul says, no, no, you too are guilty. Because in the fact that you judge what is right with you and what is wrong with other people shows that you know a difference of right and wrong which proves you are guilty before God because you do the same thing. All men are guilty. And it does not stop there in Paul's reasoning. Because there is a second reason. God is justified in His judgment because, get this, because the moralist spurns God's mercy. I told you last time it's unrepentance. And that you'll see that as we play out. He is unrepentant. He spurns the mercy of God. Notice verse 4 and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but... Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And this is what the wicked man in his heart does. This is what we prior to Christ, do. This is what every person who does not know Jesus Christ by faith is doing. They are spurning and redefining the mercy of God. You say, how so? Well, let me tell you, the religious moralists, here's what they say, the reason that God will not and has not presently judged me This is what the moralist is saying with their life. The reason God has not judged me and will not judge me is simply because I am currently okay with God. In other words, if I wasn't okay with God, obviously God would judge me. God would bring some calamity in my life. God would bring about some action by which I would see His hand of judgment as if their very life is not a result of the current mercy and grace of God, but rather a product of their own goodness. They believe it is simply because they are good people. The moralist believes that God overlooks them and does not in any way currently and will not in the future judge them on the basis Of their good life. Since they are. In their own minds. Decent people. God would never. And God does not. Judge them. In fact. That is why for them. Life is so good. That is in fact. For them in their conclusion. Why they are even alive. This was the mindset of the Jew. During Paul's day. God will not judge us. In fact, we don't escape the judgment of God. God doesn't even hand His hand of judgment upon us. For After all, we are God's chosen people. And secondly, we don't even see the judgment of God in our life. Near the fact that they forgot the history of their own nation whereby God was judging them continuously through the Old Testament and the prophets had come over and over and over again and told them about the judgment to come. They were just flat out ignoring that yet the reality was, their life was a reality of God's active mercy upon them. Our life, even before Christ, is an act of God's active mercy. And it has nothing to do with us and our goodness. It has everything to do with the riches of His kindness and forbearance. And patience. The reason that any of us have any kind of life that appears to be good on the outside is simply because of the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. It has nothing to do with intrinsic goodness in us, there is none. It has everything to do with God's intrinsic goodness. That is reflected in his mercy. Look at what Paul says by way of warning. Verse 4, he says, Do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God? In other words, don't spurn that by misunderstanding it. Don't spurn the mercy of God. Don't spurn the kindness of God. Don't spurn the patience of God. Don't spurn the long-suffering of God by misunderstanding it and redefining it. It has nothing to do with you. The reason God is merciful, the reason God shows patience and forbearance and kindness has everything to do with Him. Your current state of not being consumed immediately by a holy God The reason you and I, when we sin, are not consumed, especially prior to Christ, the reason we are not consumed by God's wrath immediately has nothing to do with our supposed good life. It has everything to do with God's mercy. Paul says, do you think lightly of that? It's an interesting phrase. It's An interesting phrase. The word... Used there, the phrase there means to show contempt or to despise. To despise. It it, it means literally to think down upon. Um, it's really to think so little of the value of something that you literally treat it with contempt. You treat it as if it's worth nothing. You have so little a view of it, that you would just as soon throw it out with the garbage. There's an example of this back in the Old Testament, and I want to take us there for a moment. Go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel. And it's during the time when Israel was already a divided nation. There were ten tribes to the north that had been divided from the two tribes to the south. And Jeremiah has been sent by God to warn Judah, the southern tribes. And he wanted to warn them of sin before him. Their sin before him. He was watching. He is is there. It is serious. God takes all sin serious. And Jeremiah is sent to warn them about their sin. Listen to what he says in chapter 7. And I, I need to read a rather lengthy portion. I'm going to read 20 verses of this. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, And proclaim there this word. I find it interesting. Basically, go to the temple and stand there and say this. You want to hear a sermon? Here it is. And say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. All of you come to the church. All of you come to the temple. You go there to worship God. Listen to what God has to say to you. That's what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien or the orphan, the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, You are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, And I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did it to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my my sight, as I have cast all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim, As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough and make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. You realize that's what they call Mary in the Catholic Church. And they pour out libations to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me? declares the Lord. Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man, on beast on the trees of the field, on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Wow. Wow. Israel, you come to my house, you come to my place, and you profess all of this religious, religiosity. You come, Judah, and you, you profess all this stuff before me, and yet in your lives you live as if you never knew me. Listen, I, there, there's, there's, there's a few warnings here that I, that I want to give you. These have been written in my Bible for years. I wrote these down as I read this passage years and years ago in reference to the heart of man. Principle number one is just simply this. Outward reform. You have outward reform without internal change. It's worthless. Outward reform without internal transformation is absolutely worthless. What God is saying to them in verses 3 through 7 of this chapter. Oh, you've done all these things. If you amend your ways, but there's no internal change to me, it's worthless. You can do all of these things. You can amend your ways, your deeds. But if there's no internal change, it's not going to matter. The second thing is just outward reform without internal transformation just produces pride. That's what it does, religious pride. You go around saying, I'm okay with God. As one person very close to me said one time, God and I have an agreement. No, you don't. Well, if you want one, here it is. Here's the agreement. Repent or go to hell. That's it. Outward reform without internal transformation just produces pride. I'm okay with God. That's what you see here in verses 9 through 11. God calling them out. And then third, outward reform without internal change, internal transformation produces devastating consequences. Devastating consequences. They made all kinds of external things. And yet God said to Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. Don't lift them up in prayer. Do not intercede for them. I will not hear. Devastating. They had all the outward morality of the day, but nothing internally had taken place in their heart. Jeremiah is saying, Listen, all that externals mean nothing without internal change. This is what Paul is trying to say. This is what Paul is getting to. This is what Paul is driving at back in Romans chapter 2. Listen, don't hold of no value the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. Don't hold it as if it's meaningless, as if it's nothing, as if the reason that God doesn't pour out His judgment simply is because we're good people. Those things that happen, He graciously is doing and holding back judgment, not because we're good, but because He's good. He isn't doing them to say to any of us, you're okay with me. He's expressing kindness. He's expressing forbearance. He is expressing patience so that all men everywhere will see their need to turn from their wicked ways. That we will see ourselves as He sees us. Every person who has ever lived Every person who's ever walked the face of this earth has experienced or is currently, if you're still living on this earth, experiencing the rich outpouring of the kindness, forbearance and patience of God. Every one of us. Each and every day that you and I wake is another outpouring of his forbearance and patience. Each morsel of food that we receive by His gracious hand is an undeserved gift from a God who is merciful, gracious, and kind. Psalm 104, verse 24 says, O Lord, how many are Your works? In wisdom You have made them all. The earth is full of Your possessions. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. You see, with God, there's always that prerequisite. There's always that reality. You can never get past the reality that you must see yourself as God sees you. The truly sad part about about any of this is that many people continue to not recognize the goodness of God as being a merciful act of God. Instead of recognizing His goodness as an expression of His kindness and forbearance and patience when it comes to the execution of His righteous judgment upon man, which God does. In fact, Romans 1 says His wrath is being revealed. It's revealed all the time as sin runs rampant. But even through cataclysmic wrath, men see the judgment of God. And they see that who don't see it rightly as mercy, as goodness, as mercy. They see the cataclysmic wrath of God upon man sometimes. And they see it as unloving and unkind and and impatient upon God. Because after all, God should not judge good people. Good people don't deserve judgment. That was seen acutely in our country several years ago during 9-11. Constant question from those who did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ was why would God allow something to happen to so many good people? As sad and as heart-wrenching as that situation was for all of us in this country, that kind of question only comes... From a heart that has redefined and spurned the value of God's constant and undeserved mercy upon man. The real tragedy in any bad situation, at least from our perspective, is that there are those who are dying who have spurned the mercy of God all their lives. And the real tragedy is that they end up spending eternity in hell Separated from the only good and loving God. Why? Simply because they refuse to see God's mercy for what it is. They refuse to see God's mercy for who he is. Because of that, they refuse to repent. God says this is what causes you to repent. This is what leads you to that place of repentance. You will never get to the place where repentance will happen as a gift from God until you begin to see yourself as a mercy of God. Your entire life is a mercy of God because you deserve divine judgment. You, in essence, have thought lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. You think that His kindness and forbearance and patience has everything to do with you. that has everything to do with God. Nothing to do with you at all. Second Peter chapter 3 gives a shocking description of what is to come. Listen to this. Listen to the patience of God. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 beginning in verse 3 Know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by His word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise. As some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, until the inevitable day of God's actual pouring out of final wrath, His kindness and forbearance and patience are continually being experienced by all men. Everywhere. And the purpose of his long-suffering kindness is not for the purpose of excusing sin or overlooking sin. It's for the purpose that man would actually see his sin for what it is and repent. God is patient with all of us so that we might repent. We know what repentance means. We talk about it from time to time here in this church. When it comes up, it's here again. Repentance is the changing of your mind. The changing of your mind, really. That's the the actual word. To see your sinfulness as God sees it. That's really the idea of repentance. To see your sinfulness as God sees it. The desire of God is that all men would have a change of mind concerning their very condition before Him that men would have a a turning from evil to what is good. And the only one who is good is God Himself. Remember what Jesus said to the one who said, good teacher? Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus was doing twofold thing there, acknowledging the reality of the goodness of God and the excellencies of God, and yet saying to the man, if you're calling me good, are you saying I am God? So we cannot be confused. True repentance, folks, is not regret. Sometimes we get that idea that repentance is simply regret. If we see sorrow, if we see tears, if we see someone regretting something, then it's true repentance. That's not what Paul is talking about. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about repentance. Regret is simply sorrow that you might get when you get caught for doing a wrong you have a regret that you did it. Why? Because you got caught. Regret is a sadness over the consequences that you have to pay. But true repentance is completely different than that. True repentance is a change of mind concerning the very sin. It is seeing it as God sees it before a holy God. It is seeing it as as, as a an affront to God Himself. And from true repentance flows a godly sorrow that flows from the heart that is broken because it has lived contrary to God and to God's design. That's repentance. When true repentance happens, the consequences for the sin have no bearing by way of comparison to the broken relationship that results with God because of the sin. In other words, the true repentant heart cares little about what the consequences might be simply because they have such a desire to be restored with their God. So if God's kindness is so great, then why don't men repent? Verse 5 tells us, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Man's heart is stubborn, spiritually hard. I was thankful when I found out what stubbornness meant. It it really means hardness. That's that's the idea because of the hardness and unrepentance of your heart. It's the same word in the original language where we get a medical term. You know what the medical term is? Arterial sclerosis. That's the root behind the word stubbornness. Arterial sclerosis. You know what arterial sclerosis is? The hardening of your physical arteries. Stubbornness in the spiritual realm is a hardening of your spiritual arteries. When your physical heart, your arteries become physically hardened, they become clogged with all the garbage that we put into us, it becomes unresponsive to the lack of blood flow to it, and it, it starts to have a problem, doesn't it? So too in the spiritual life. Our spiritual heart is dead to the spiritual flow. Why? Because of our own stubbornness. Our own unwillingness to turn from our sin. Paul says because of that. Not because of the lack of mercy of God. No, no, not because God isn't merciful. Not because God isn't kind and isn't forbearing and isn't patient. No, 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 no. Judgment is coming because of your hard heart. So don't go away and blame God for sin. Don't go away and blame God for the judgment that's coming. It is man who brings on God's judgment. Why? God always judges according to truth. Always. His judgment rightly falls. Don't ask when reading the Old Testament, why did God destroy the world by flood? Don't ask that. Don't ask why did he turn Lot's wife into salt. Don't ask why did God command Israel to be destroyed by the Canaanites and others around them. Don't ask that. Don't ask why did God immediately send fire from his altar and snuff out Aaron's two sons right before his very eyes. The why is seen in His holiness. His waiting to act in righteous judgment is only to be seen in His kindness and patience. Out of mercy, God desires repentance. So why is God justified in His judgment? Because all men are without excuse. And no one deserves his mercy. None of us here have ever deserved his mercy. Even the religious moralist. There is no excuse for man before God. Let me ask us a question this morning as I begin to close us for our time of communion. Think about this as you ponder our time this morning. Do you take your forgiveness? Do you take your forgiveness as something that you are entitled to without remembering that it is simply an act of kindness and forbearance and patience by God? It seems to me that we do not truly understand forgiveness if it does not bring us to the point of being completely and utterly amazed that God would in any fashion be kind and forbearing and patient to any of us. Dr. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones, who passed on in the 80s, put it this way, and I'll just end with this, He said, quote, God forbid that we should be guilty of just looking in a glancing matter at these things and passing on to what we are interested in, we who claim his name and who know him and who receive so much from him. God forbid that we should be so unconcerned about those who are outside, those who are much more guilty of the same thing, infinitely more so, for they are, in a sense, producing their own damnation, unquote. As we come to our time in the communion this morning, we should thank the Lord for being so patient and merciful with us, shouldn't we? Passing over the many sins for which we deserve his full and just punishment. giving us the opportunity to repent don't walk out that door today an unrepentant sinner if it were not for jesus christ through which the love of god has been poured out upon us none of us would have any hope i've said it before there are only two ways to die the Bible says we have been appointed. We have an appointment. All of us have an appointment. We have been appointed to die once, and then comes judgment. Hebrews nine twenty seven says. But there is only two ways to die. You are either going to die in your sin, or you are going to die in Christ. You are going to either stand before God, with your justification. Your sin. Or are you going to stand before God with your justification being Jesus Christ? Those are the only two ways to die. We hope in Christ. And we remember Christ in our communion. Let's pray together. Father, our time this morning is so rich just thinking of you. Thinking of your character, the very nature of who you are, what you show us by way of your grace and mercy, how we see our own sinfulness before you, how we see your righteousness before us, how we see the hypocrisy even of our own hearts, even in Christ, Lord, we, we know we're secure with you, and yet we take such for granted your grace and forbearance and mercy. We abuse the grace that you have already shown us. And sometimes think that ah, we, we we can do this because we're already secure. Forgive us, Lord, as Christians. And forgive us for not reaching out to those who do not know you yet. We're squandering those moments. Not helping them to see their sinfulness before you. Not because they're different than us, but because before you they're guilty. So, Lord, help us to see those things. Help us to recognize it. Help us to not take forgiveness for granted and think it was simply because we deserved it. Thank you for the riches of your kindness, the unfathomable riches that come from you. What a grace. Your mercies are indeed new every morning. Thank you for that. Lord, as we come to our time around the communion table, may your name be honored in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.